0: Thank you for waiting. We're now boarding all passengers on No Blackout Dates Airlines. All aboard, No Blackout Dates to... Wait, where the hell are we going? No Blackout Dates, zero Blackout Dates. Good to see you, good to see you. How you going?
1: Nothing, nothing, really and truly all day long, like 7-11. My writer's
0: retreat is to send everybody else the hell away from me and let
2: me stay home. Do three
1: nice big like boom, boom, booms. Like I'm actually strongly considering putting duct tape over my doorbell and then putting a piece of yellow tape on top of the duct tape that says do not ring. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another week of the No Blackout Dates podcast. My name is Tim and I'm Evan, And today we've got a great episode for you with our new friend Chuck Thompson, Chuck is a longtime journalist and former travel writer and the author of one of the more well-known travel genre books called Smile When You're Lying, Confessions of a Rogue Travel Writer. And this book is what turned me on to Chuck a few years ago. Uh, I I read it and was particularly taken aback by his thoughts on my state, Colorado, as well as the entire uh, business in which we operate. Chuck is somebody that has watched... The travel writing genre changed from narrative, experience-driven pieces to the uh, bullet-point subhead trip planning pieces that you see everywhere today. And and he has a lot of thoughts that he's going to share on that.
2: Yeah, the book is basically the book version of the No Blackout Dates podcast. It's very it's he takes a very um, honest, unfiltered look at the travel industry. As a well-seasoned, well-respected journalist and who's been all over the world, and he has just some scathing insights on the travel world. It's pretty cool. And it's, you know, I think, I don't
1: know, Evan, maybe you can confirm this as well. But for me, like reading Chuck's work, uh, both in Smile When You're Lying and other stuff that he's published, it's kind of a humbling thing. As somebody that that works in the in the media industry and the digital media industry in particular, because he calls out all of the bullshit, and it's like the things that we sit around on this podcast and talk about as is this bullshit or is this not bullshit? I mean, Chuck pretty much
2: proves that it is. Do a guy who's he had he he is still a travel writer, but he doesn't he's moved away from the travel writing uh, sphere lately and to focus on some other stuff. And you can see he's become a little disillusioned with travel writing and the industry in general. And it's kind of funny to be on the other side of it, talking to him as two travel writers, to this guy who is like right. clearly kind of over the industry and uh, thinking like, oh, shit, I bet we embody everything this guy hates. No, You know, I, I thought this reading the book and chatting with him
1: and getting to know him a little bit. Confirmed it, but I do kind of see a bit of myself in him. Uh, I, he might hate me for saying that. I don't know, but uh, he, you know, he's somebody that I liked his writing a lot. And and as soon as we started this podcast, I was like, we got to get this guy on. Uh, and and it's just it's crazy to put more of a more of a personal connection to to somebody that you admire.
2: What did you do today, Tim? You were telling me about you told me earlier you went, you went rock climbing or.
1: Skydiving so, yeah.
2: or bungee jumping or something that I would never do in a million years? So this
1: is the deal. I'm training for a splitboard mountaineering expedition to Svalbard at the end of April.
2: Oh, shit. I didn't even yes. go to
1: Svalbard. That's sick. So we fly into Longyearbyen, yeah. and then we 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 have a night there, snowmobile for three hours into the wilderness, and we camp for a week on a glacier. And then every day we just climb mountains and snowboard down them. Dude, that is so sick. Man. It's going to be sick, but I'm, I mean, I'm not going to lie. I'm a little nervous about it. So I'm trying to train and I'm trying to be prepared. So I went to a rock climbing gym yesterday and, you know, I'm pretty comfortable in the mountains and backcountry and whatever, but I haven't really done a ton of climbing. And this isn't a climbing trip, but I am going to have to have a harness and an ice axe. So I signed up for an intro to climbing class. I, co- I, go- I paid online. And it's funny because this is like, this epitomizes the climbing dirt bag thing to me. So I sign up online. The first class I wanted to take, the website was not working and wouldn't let me book. So I signed up for one the next day. It let me in. I paid my 20 bucks, whatever. So I show up at the gym yesterday. I'm waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. The teacher never shows up. <laughs> So, and, and it also turns out that I'm the only person that signed up for the class. They haven't apparently updated their website in a long time. That class is now on Thursdays and not on Tuesdays. And nobody t- said that on the internet. The internet still accepts the booking, but it ended up being okay. Like the guy set me up with a harness and gave me some pointers, the guy that was working at the front desk. And I just kind of, you know, messed around on the bouldering wall for like an hour by myself. Probably looked like a complete idiot, but, <laughs>
2: uh, so I, I wonder if the rule is the same. If you, it's like, you know how in high school, the kind of unspoken rule was if the teacher doesn't show up for 20 minutes, that all the kids get to go to the library. Yeah. You have that rule. I, yeah, well, yeah I, I think so. the same for like, for like athletic classes at the gym. That was just you that you just like instinctively drive to the library Uh, no, but I instinctively just
1: went and tried to do it by myself. And then after I, you know, got my quote unquote workout in, I just kind of sat there on a chair and fooled around on my phone. Yeah, it was kind of, I don't know. It was funny. It could have been worse. Like fortunately the guy at the desk was super cool and he was like, I'm so sorry, man. Like blah, 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 blah. Like you can just go do whatever you want. But
2: yeah, well you handled it well, I guess. Yeah, I didn't hurt myself, so that's good. Yeah, so do you have to be an experienced climber for this thing, or, or is no climbing experience necessary?
1: Uh, you don't have to be like a climber, but you have to be comfortable ascending steep mountains uh, with a harness. So I just, I'm trying to, like I said, I'm trying to over-prepare, and I'm trying to make sure that I'm in better shape than I need to be and more comfortable with my gear than I need to be.
2: I went in April in like four years ago and it was um four, geez, four years ago. And it's the, the sun, it's getting brighter every day, but you're so far north that every day is like 25 minutes longer than the previous day. So like the day you get there, a the sun will set at like nine, then it'll set at 925. And then by the time your trip is over, it'll be setting at like 1130. So wow. it's just like, it's it's crazy how quickly it happens there. Because it's so, so, so far north. For anyone who doesn't know, it's the northernmost settled town in the world, I think. I'm excited. I'm going with a backcountry touring outfit called
1: 40 Tribes. And it should be the craziest thing I've ever done. Well, I think uh, with that, we'll get in here with Chuck. And we will see you on the other side. All right. We're here with Chuck Thompson. Chuck, how are you doing today?
0: I'm all right. Thanks for having me. I feel pretty good.
1: Yeah, thanks for coming on. Uh, I I I appreciate you taking the time to talk to us, and uh, I I'm a big fan of your work, as I've expressed to you already. Before we before we dive into anything too serious, why don't you give us a quick rundown on what you're working on these days, and uh, anything coming up?
0: Yeah, I've I've been working well for a long time, in in some ways for five years, but really in earnest for about two years on a new book for Simon & Schuster that is going to tackle the very large and somewhat gauzy topic of status and prestige. So it's not a travel book in any way, which I think a lot of people um, tend to, you know, that have read my stuff before, have gotten used to, uh, associated me that way. Although I've done a lot of travel for that book. But I'm hopeful that that book will see the light of day next year, 2021. But we will see. I'm almost done with the with my draft of it. And in the meantime, I'm I'm editor of a uh, of a nonprofit environmental website based out of Oregon called Columbia Insight. Been doing that uh, this year as well, which has uh, been really uh, fun and rewarding for me. And then just my usual freelance stuff, writing things here and there for various websites, and still a few print publications as well.
1: Cool. So speaking speaking of your books, um, I read Smile When You're Lying um, a few years ago, probably three four years ago now. And you say in there something that I've had a beef with ever since where you called Colorado a Midwest state. <laughs> and there is nothing that you could say that's more offensive to Coloradans. I know, I
0: know, man. Well, and
1: I, I rebutted you in an article for Matador Network a few years ago. I I'll have to send you the article, but I said I don't I don't remember what I was talking about in, entirely, but it was an article about Denver and I think I closed the article with Chuck Thompson must have been too busy staring east.
0: Well, it is true that I had probably my first, sorry about that, probably my first experiences in Colorado, unlike a lot of other people, instead of being in the Rockies and in Denver, uh, was in your flatlands east of Denver. I guess I felt as a guy who spent my entire life on the West Coast a little offended by people who basically do you know live adjacent to Wyoming and Texas and the Dakotas and Nebraska and whatnot trying to position themselves as a West coast state. It's like, Hey, we're way cooler than where we really are. You know? And it's sort of like the, you know, there was a one line out of small you your line that I've taken a lot of shit about was where I think I said that Austin, if Austin wasn't located in Texas, it'd be called Sacramento. And Austin gets a lot of, um, a lot of praise, I think, because it happens to be surrounded by Texas, you know? So it's this sort of weird little oasis of liberalism there. So I guess I feel that way about Colorado as well. It's like, man, everybody is like, don't think you're so special just because you've got a couple of craft brew houses and a cool baseball stadium. It's like, oh yeah, we're, we're better than everything around us. That's the sense I always got from that Colorado thing. At any rate, good for Colorado. It's an incredible, I will say, I'll say this and then let's move off Colorado. I grew up skiing in Alaska and I just thought it was the best place to be skiing and I loved it. And But every Christmas, all the rich kids in school would go back to Colorado or perhaps Utah for these ski vacations. And they'd come back and it'd be – all they could talk about is oh, Colorado, ski Colorado. It's the greatest, champagne powder. And we were up to Copper Mountain for a week. And yeah. I'd always go, man, fuck, it's, we got way better mountains here. It's better – all this. Man, first time I went to Colorado skiing, I had a really incredible experience. And I thought, oh, okay, I get it. This is why everybody – it's so much better skiing in the Rockies than it is on the West
1: I don't consider Colorado West Coast at all. It's not West Coast, but I do consider it a Western state because the culture of Colorado is much more in line with the West Coast than it is with Kansas and Nebraska, particularly now. And, you know, I think that Colorado in in the mind of people is the mountains. I I would prefer to be called a, a mountain state over anything else.
0: Yeah, it's so mad. don't say you're West Coast, and it's probably cooler to be a mountain state at this point anyway.
1: Well, we got half of California moving here, which is. You've
0: got the other half of Texas, the other half of Texas moving there, and they've always been coming there. And that, to me, I lived in Texas for um, was it, two years, nine months, three weeks, four days, sixteen hours, twelve minutes, and forty-seven seconds. And I always maintain that that was a Midwestern state, and boy, people in Texas don't want to hear that.
1: When you're going to write, do you ever leave to go somewhere? Where would you go? I know that you're not a fan of writer's retreats. Um, What's the situation for you? Well,
0: in theory, I think I like this idea of going somewhere and being by myself and um, writing, you know, uh, not having any distractions and getting a lot of work done. I've tried to do that on a few occasions and it almost never works. If I can send my writer's retreat is to send everybody else the hell away from me and let me stay home. Um, so yeah, no. And I've never really even understood writer's retreats. I, I think you know you guys might feel the same way. I don't typically hang around with other writers or editors. That's not really, I've never sought to do that. And in a way I think that's maybe hurt me here and there at times that, that I haven't networked that way. I've never been part of a writer's group or reader's group or I'm pretty solitary in that way. I don't like to share my, what I'm writing rough drafts with anybody before I absolutely have to. And I know, you know, I know that that's not other people have that process where they, they like getting feedback. They want to send their rough draft to three or four or five trusted readers. I have been a trusted reader for people before, you know, but for me, I I can't stand it. So.
2: Yeah. I feel like we talked about this a little bit last time is that, I mean, writers, It's a tough crowd because I think writers are competitive and they're a little awkward. So going to a a retreat or any kind of workshop environment where you're around other writers, you're relying on them for feedback. It's supposed to be this collaborative space. I think it never quite works out that way because everyone keeps themselves. Everyone's a little wary of everybody else. Everyone's very competitive. And if you read the work of someone else who's better than you, you're jealous and you hate them. And you aren't inclined to help them out at all. And that's, you know, I think it's kind of a weird dynamic between writers. And I feel that way on press trips a lot too.
0: Well, I think that, I think as well, um, you know, that I think most writers, or at least myself and a lot of other people get into the game of writing because they're readers and they're kind of solitary thinkers. They're not real. They're not the people who mix well at parties.
2: So that's something you definitely don't miss about traveling more for work and doing a lot more travel writing as you used to do compared to, to what you're doing now.
0: I hated it. And I wrote something about that in, in smile when you're lying that I kind of thought everybody agreed with me. Now, I guess there are some people that just love, I love meeting people. I love talking to people and f- exploring new shit. And I, I like learning new stuff, but not in that way. So I always, I always disliked that part of the experience.
1: Yeah, In, in that way, you know, it's funny because, as a, a writer and a baseball fan, I kind of have always considered base writing to be the baseball of professions because if you're into it and you and you get it, it's fucking awesome. but if if not, if you try to present it to somebody that's used to hockey or soccer, they mm. hate it. And they don't understand the isolation and they don't understand the mental game of it. And I, I will have the argument about baseball not being boring every day of the week. And I have with a particular friend who's a soccer fan that's like his whole life. And we go back and forth about it all the time. The
0: most un American of all sports, most low expectation yeah. sport of all time. Uh, I do. I have an answer for you, Evan. I do one thing I really love and I love hotels. I really love what I could live in hotels the rest of my life. And there's nothing more fun to me than either, you know, after you've got done with the the grind of traveling to get somewhere, or you've put in this day of whatever awkward encounters, or maybe even fun encounters that, that you need to get done. I love sitting on a hotel bed in my shorts and t-shirt, just flicking channels, man. And maybe, you know, hitting the mini bar or something and just sitting there with a beer and just going like that with the clicker, you know, I could do that for four or five hours. I love, I like hotels.
2: Is this feeling that everything is taken care of?
0: Yeah, right? and usually, you know, when, if you're on a press trip, you get to stay in at least a decent hotel room and that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. So, a, a nice hotel room is even better. <laughs> so I do it makes you stuff.
1: feel like you're, yeah, it makes you feel like you're more of a baller than you actually are, for sure.
0: Oh, they, they, I mean, it's definitely, I mean, that's the, what was the line? It's probably not the line in Almost Famous where, you know, the band is, the, the kid from Rolling Stone is a reporter and it's like, the band's going to sit there and try to make you feel cool. And so you're going to, you're going to be right. Something favorable to them. That's, that's definitely mm-hmm. what they do on those trips. Yeah. You get to feel like a big shot for a couple of days or a week or however long your trip is. And then you don't want to, yep. you don't want to upset the people that make you feel like a big shot
2: yeah we've talked about this before do you ever feel like a fraud on those trips because i mean it's like they put you up in like a six hundred dollar six seven hundred dollar a night room and you're thinking like this is pretty nice but i could never afford like this is no, not I've me looked, uh, like, I, I could feel never like ever afford. I feel like
0: yeah this is where i belong i should be fucking yeah. in these six hundred dollar suites every you know night of my life i've Good. talked to people yeah. that have that whole fraud syndrome it doesn't make any sense to me also you brought up baseball i've got my uh pathetic Mariners glass
1: yard. Hey man, I was Ken Griffey Jr. was my favorite player when I was growing up. I loved watching the Mariners Uh. back before
2: the Rockies were around. They were my team. Do do you see yourself in the future getting back into the travel sphere?
0: I don't see it on the near horizon, but I wouldn't rule it out only because I did so much in that uh, travel around before. And a a lot of people do still tend to know me for that more than other stuff that I've done, and so I do. People call me here and there to to do stuff. Um, So yeah, I could see I could see doing that again. You know, I think I mentioned before I I I still really like obviously I like traveling. Virtually everyone likes traveling. I like travel writing. I have a great respect for the whole travel writing community. Um, I'm not not doing it because I don't like it. I just I feel like I was involved in that world for so long.
2: Do you think the travelers are getting worse as time goes on? I feel like, and I have no frame of reference because I haven't, I've been traveling for maybe like seven, eight years, but I feel like travel, like as it's been, co- the world is becoming more globalized and travels more accessible to people and more and more people are traveling for leisure right now. I feel like there's the, the traveler becoming less uh, aware and less, um, ex- is, uh, the, the, the average traveler is less experienced. And that's kind of evidenced by things like we talk about all the time tim like, like like gate lice and crowding around the gate and getting on the plane i think you have to get on the plane first and you know things like that like faux pas like that
0: well if you're talking about american travelers i think just in general americans have become just more angry and a bit more surly with the in public than they were 20 or 30 years ago i think that's undeniable for a variety of reasons and couple that with the fact that the travel industry has continues to just cut every corner it can to in, in ways that benefits their companies and increases their bottom line revenues at the expense of traveler comfort. So that simply exacerbates the situation. So I, I think it's in a way it's a little bit hard to separate travelers and, and the sort of general comportment of travelers from just the general population since essentially the general population travels now, but you mentioned gate crowding and getting on airplanes first. That is really annoying. There's nothing worse than, you know, you've got, you're in boarding group B and it's clear that, that some jackass in boarding group F is sitting there kind of, you know, breathing down your neck and, and doing that whole thing. But that's a good example of the ways that the, you know, the airline industry in particular has exacerbated the problem because they've, they charge money to take our luggage now. and They don't do a very uh, great job. They do an okay job of delivering it quickly. but So nobody wants to check their bags anymore. They want to save money and they want to save time on the other end. So now everybody's got to jam their bags in the upper bin. And that sort of um, pressure and that competition for that overhead bin space, that's totally new. That didn't exist 20 or 30 years ago. It just wasn't there. That's why there's that crowding and people want to get on there. You know, I am one of those people now. I completely changed my way of flying. I get to the airport now a good two hours ahead of my flight. And I just kind of use it as a little bit of, you know, chill out time. If I want to do a little bit of work in some corner,
1: I will. Yes, me too. I do the same thing. But
0: I will tell you, when I was in my teens and 20s, I was that dude that cut it as close as possible. I was the last guy on that flight. I'm like... I'm not spending one more minute at the damn airport than I have to. I'm gonna. I'm getting there late. I mean, why would I want to waste an hour of my life in a fucking departure lounge? Are you kidding me?
2: That's that's me. That's and that's. I'm waiting for the day when I miss my flight by five minutes because I do that. I push it as late as I possibly can. Lounges, lounges do change that though. So why do you do that? Why are you like? Well, that? the reason you just said because I don't want to. Why? I mean, the, the travel experience is so tedious anyway so you have to you mm. get there you spend like an hour or two in the airport you get on the flight you have to get out of the air, other airport it's like why would i get there an extra hour in advance just to play it safe when i pretty much know i can tell like if i'm gonna have to wait in security depending on what like time you, of day it you, is it's you
0: like you're too carry on do you check your luggage or do you
2: try? i only travel with a backpack so i don't have
0: well when you say a backpack i mean are you mean like a camping backpack that's all
2: no, I mean like a school backpack.
0: Okay, okay, okay. Yeah. So you could just shove it under the seat if you have to yeah. kind
2: of deal. It's, it's, okay, it's, like, so a, it's like a not, bigger than average school backpack, but yeah, I, right. I put it so, up. But the, you're,
0: you're not getting on the plane in that war of like, oh, fuck, what am I going to do if the overhead bins? No, all
2: so I don't have that. So me and Tim talk about this because he is the overhead bin space. But he also yeah. has only travels a backpack too, Tim. So I don't get uh, – But I generally, yeah, unless I'm on a – unless I'm on a snowboard trip or
1: another like dedicated excursion where I have to have a certain set of gear. I only have my backpack, but it's like my backpack. It's not a, it's not a camping backpack. It's a travel backpack, but it's big enough that like I have my work stuff in there. I have anything else I'm going to need. And so it it could go under the seat if I absolutely had to, but I don't want to do that. I would rather put it in the bin. And I am the type of guy that shows up at the airport Early because I like to get through security, sit down, get my laptop out, go through my emails, make sure I'm going to be good to be offline for however many hours I'm going to be on the plane for because I'm not paying stupid money on the plane for shitty Wi-Fi. (laughs) So I like to get everything done at the airport before I get on the plane. And then I get on the plane, I can just read, I can nap, I can, you know, type out some journal, you know, whatever, like personal
2: writing if I want to do that. But
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah, just like me. I don't know Evan. Evan's making life hard
2: for all of us. Well, I'll I'll revise this. So if the flight is at like three p.m., like afternoon flight, yeah, I'll get there. I'll get there early, and i especially with lounges. Like, like why wouldn't you want to just sit in the lounge and eat free food for a few hours and work and relax? Like that's fine. If the flight's early, if it's like seven a.m., I'm getting. To, if the flight leaves at seven a.m., I'm I'm getting on the flight at six fifty-five. Like so you're not even guaranteed to have have a place to sit if you just get there and like sitting at the gate. Sometimes that's so that's not comfortable. I don't want to sit there. It's not comfortable.
1: I got a goddamn Chase Sapphire Reserve card. I go to the lounge, man.
2: That's what that's I what get I get mean. that free coffee. That's what I'm saying. But help us settle this issue. So if someone if the flight attendant asks you uh will you check your bag will you volunteer to check your no, bag? I never volunteer. But I don't Thank you. but
0: I don't make a I don't make a fuss if they
2: want. No, 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 yeah. Yeah, no,
0: I never
1: because I I do that I and somebody just commented on Apple. We had a listener that just commented about, on Apple that said they agree with me that they volunteer to check their bag too.
0: You mean just out of a sense of, of the greater public good and just to kind of be cool and help help the the flight crew along, or why why do you do? What's your
1: motivation?
2: He thinks he gets free drink tickets out of it. I might get a free drink
1: ticket, A, and B, it makes my load lighter, like I'll take my laptop and my book out so that I can have what I need, and then I'll just pick up my shit if I'm especially if you have a layover and I have a smaller bag with me, then it's just less things I gotta lug around at another airport for two hours.
2: And then he turns around and starts a slow clap, a round of applause for himself.
1: I
0: will say this, when <laughs> I don't know. Are people listening? To this gonna really care that much. What we think about packing? I will say this: when I when I have checked bags, and I, especially if I have a connecting flight or it's a long, you know, whatever, I'm in in the air, in the travel mode for six eight hours, it is kind of nice not to be burdened.
1: But what I, what I will not do, and I don't think I will ever do this, is get a roll behind bag. I feel like the only people that can make that look cool are airline staff members.
0: Well, even when you're going through the airport, you don't do that. See, I, I have one of those now. Yeah, I always thought those were uncool, but they're 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 pretty handy. But I won't roll it up the aisle of the plane. That's what bugs me is when people try to use their little rollers while they're in the aisle of the plane. And
2: well, Tim, you mean like the where the flight attendants show up and they're all like in unison, like rolling the same bag. And yeah, that does does look pretty cool.
1: Yeah, exactly. And they've got like the they've got the two bags. Like I I once went to uh, Costa Rica with. I had a buddy when I lived in Denver who was a pilot for United and I flew with him to Costa Rica and I showed up at the backpack and he had like he was dressed nice. He had his pilot set up like I looked like a freaking grungy asshole walking down the airport next to this guy.
2: Well, another thing I've wondered about always, too, is they have they always boarded planes front to back? Because that that's a that's that's an like industry standard now, isn't it? And it makes no sense to me.
0: I've always wondered why they board first class first. Like, you know, so they can serve that. So, so they can give them a round of drinks and stuff like that. Um,
2: but don't don't they also usually do like okay now rows like traditionally it's like rows like one through fifteen then rows fifteen through thirty it's never back to front except now it is because of COVID I think but
0: no you, it was back to front at some point in the in the past I kind of right. I'm trying to recall how that went when I was a kid and I feel like it was back to front.
2: Actually. Yeah, that because that makes sense. But now it's always I always am wondering like why? How is this efficient? You have people blocking the aisle as other people are trying to get by, and I was well, I was curious if it was always like that or what's the uh, that is how that, that's that how that boarding, that's changed.
0: You know, the whole boarding and deboarding thing is studied by all these airlines. They have whole crews of you know behavioral engineers or scientists or whatever on that thing trying to just shave seconds off of that thing. That's you know every minute that plane's parked at that gate costs airlines money and, and they're really and airports too. They're trying to just move things in and out as quickly as possible. So I think that, that sort of accounts for why it changes a lot. There, there come these sort of new theories or new practices that are supposed to save money and, and one or two airlines get sold on that. And then the rest copy, if it, it, it appears to be successful.
2: Yeah. I mean, they're the professionals. They have all the data. It's not a
0: random experience, right? That whole thing is mapped out and studied and looked yeah. at and timed at.
2: Right. But I the uninformed passenger of course think I know better so I'm you know what do you guys do
1: about and I'll preface this by saying I am an aisle seat guy I always select the aisle seat. Uh but I'm also the type of person that like kind of plots out my travel day in advance so that I'm not like slamming three cups of coffee right before I get on the plane so I'm going to have to pee five times like I try to I, I like to think that I'm like this well-seasoned traveler that just goes through the motions like a badass. I probably don't, but that's what I tell myself. And so I get the aisle seat. I don't drink a bunch of coffee. I only drink one cup. And then I sit down and I try not to have to get up during the flight. Unless it's a long haul, then, you know, that's out the window. But if it's just like
2: a two or three hour flight, I try to not have to get up. What do you guys think about that? I think the guy who's sitting next to you in the middle seat is probably drinking five cups of coffee, (laughs) Being like, I'm just living and enjoying my life. I'm going to make this idiot get up like six times when I have to go to the bathroom. Yeah. So fuck him.
0: Yeah, that's the question. When 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 Evan and his five cups of coffee are in the middle <laughs> seat, and he gets up for the third time, are you the guy in the aisle that goes, <sighs> oh, "Fuck, all right"? <laughs> yeah, yeah.
2: <laughs> now Tim just punches the guy in the nuts the third time he gets up. No, I judge them quietly in my head. That's what I you
0: do. Think the average traveler is as kind of wired into that process and that aisle seat. And because it's long flight, I don't have to go to the bathroom, which is both a pain in the neck for me (laughs) and an inconvenience to, you know, my aisle mates, you know, should I be in the middle or window, etc. Do you think most people are thinking the whole process through to that degree at this point? Or is that something that's maybe a small percentage of?
1: Well, I'll I'll tell you who's not thinking that process through are the people that stand up the second the plane pulls into the (laughs) gate. Those are the people that are not thinking
2: that. I think this aisle seat is a selfless selection to some degree, because I think if you, it's not all like, it's not all rosy sitting in the aisle seat. We've talked about this. You get your, your shoulder or your knee hit by the cart. Um, You you have to get up for other people. You can't ever truly relax, but.
0: Okay. I got, I'm going to get to just (laughs) save humanity.
2: But if I, I feel like if you take like a window seat, the reason I don't do window seat, I'm an aisle seat guy too, is because I don't want to have to do the awkward thing where I'm like, uh, "Excuse me, uh, I, can, 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 I, I, right. can you get up again?" Like I have to go. Like I don't want to have to do that minimum, yeah. minimum one time. Like there's no way I'm asking people, two people, to do that twice. But that's because I don't want to. You know, I just care so much about other people. You know, I'm just so, I'm just that guy. You know, but. Yeah, <laughs> but it's such a
1: charitable person.
2: But, you know, so I think sitting in the <laughs> aisle seat, you, you're you're inherently saying like, I will. I don't mind getting up for other people and I don't want to make other people get up for me. There's something, you're not consciously thinking of it, but it's a subconscious thing, Tim. Give yourself credit for that. No, I know. Actually, Evan, you actually just honed in on
1: another mm-hmm. central thesis of my aisle seat mentality because that is certainly part of it.
0: Well, the other part for me and uh, is that you do get a fairly small amount of space with your seat back cushion and other things. And the great thing I like about being in the aisle is I like having my, I, I have my bag ready when I have it right above me. The first airline that figures out they can save so much damn money by getting rid of that uh, beverage cart and just pass out bottles of water at the gate. So you get a bottle of water, mm-hmm. the water for the flight. We ain't coming around and filling up the little dinky thing. And, you know, booze is a little bit tougher, but make people buy booze. I guess they can't get ice, but whatever. Make them buy booze at the, at the gate. And that's that. Bob Crandall, who was a former CEO of American Airlines, and one of the really famous stories about American Airlines is that in the 1970s or something, Bob Crandall, who's a legendary CEO of American Airlines, he was one of their probably greatest, yeah, greatest. Within that company, he's, he's a legend. And he figured out at one point, he was looking at the sales on a flight, little salads, and there was a black olive that came in every salad that they used to serve you on the flight. And he thought, well, why don't we if we just got rid of that black olive, we could save this company. Yeah, I don't know what it was, but it was literally like, they were spending like $800,000 a year on olives for their salads. So he just said, you know what, fuck it, we're not giving people the olive and save the company close to a million bucks a year, just like that. So he was kind of one of those guys that was just seeing mm-hmm. things. And oh my God, the money, uh, the beverage card for the, the, what you, the cost benefit analysis for me personally, I hate the beverage cart because it is always whacking me in the knee and the shin and the ankle and the people who operate it, the flight attendants, they just, at this point it's your fault, right? It's your fault if you're, if they bash you with that. $400. They,
1: yeah. They look at you like mm-hmm. it yeah, is for right. sure.
0: And you'll be there asleep and you'll do the whole thing and, You'll get hit, and you'll probably exaggerate a little bit how much it hurts and how pissed you are to have been waking up. But it still is rude. You're kind of half asleep, and then you have you know. And they just – they don't care. But
2: <laughs> Well, also, if you're trying to get yeah. to go to the bathroom, you have to look and see where the cart is. Yeah. Because if it's one row ahead of you, and you get to go to the bathroom, then they're going to be blocking your yeah, way. And, and it's like- For,
1: like, 30
2: minutes. For, like, 30 minutes, they're going to be pushing up, boop, boop. But no, I mean that's interesting. Like they, they don't innovate a ton. Like they sell like they do the products. They sell the watches. They sell that stuff you don't need. But like, what's like a real youth, like thing that people who are flying for like six hours at a time? Like what do they? Where would they could they really use a to, like a toothbrush? Maybe a toothbrush that'd be good. Like a little disposable toothbrush.
1: That'd be good. But I've I've got to say that if there were that many more things that could be sold, Sky Mall wouldn't have gone out of business. Right? When, wasn't Sky Mall where you order stuff though? Like not like it's like a catalog. Yeah. It was one of my lifelong dreams was to order something out of Sky Mall. Every <laughs> time I got on a plane, I would look at Sky Mall and like, what am I going to order one of these freaking nonsense yard like signs or something out of Sky Mall? And I never did it because I'm a frugal asshole. But I always thought it would be cool to order something out of Sky Mall while you're on a plane. And then like you come to your house and you're like, yeah, I got that while I was on that plane. All right. Well, we're gonna. Uh, Move into our next section here, Chuck, and then we'll, I know we're taking up a lot of your time here, but this is our listener question where we have a question submitted and we're going to discuss it. So here we go. This is from Ron, a 32 year old traveler from Texas. He says, I was on a trip in Europe and I had bought a generic Europe travel guidebook. One of the thick ones that you can't actually put in your carry on bag because it's such a hoss. I landed in London. We were also going to Paris, Switzerland, Amsterdam, and Berlin, Germany. I started reading through the book. I had kind of noted pages along the way that I wanted to check out when we got to each destination. By the time we got to the third city, I began to notice a trend in the reviews in the books. The vast majority of not only restaurants and museums, but also lodging properties we're all located within three to four blocks of one another. I've started thinking that I wasn't going to pay much attention to that. I wanted to see more of the city, but the book would say that you're not seeing the city unless you're in this specific area. And I'm curious if that's something you guys have found, or if you think that guidebooks are actually the holy grail that they make themselves out to be.
0: The, so, I, I think what I would say on that, in terms of the use of a guidebook for that, if you are wanting. What has become this commodified and formulaic tourist experience? then guidebooks are really great; they're really good for that. And by the way, I'm not knocking that. Things become overcrowded tourist experiences yeah. because they're good in the first place. Everybody complains about Waikiki and Diamond Head. That's and true, but the reason that Waikiki is crowded is because it's really cool. Or going to the Grand, Canyon. yeah, it's awesome. It's a great spot. The Grand Canyons, fucking amazing. That's why everybody goes there, and we live in this world now in which you kind of have to put up with that. I mean, you you know, Sweden, what's, is it Gamla Stan or something? I, I was there 20 years ago. And I remember that old town. Of Stockholm. of I, I said, Sweden, I meant Stockholm. Incredible. Right. That old town of Stockholm. I, I get to live there. I could stay there for two weeks straight. But, you know, and if you're a tourist, that's kind of where you're going to hang out. And it's great. I would, I people I know going to Stockholm, I always say, man, make sure you go down there at least for a few days. So I, I'm not against the, uh, the kind of commercial tourist experience, but that's when you buy that kind of book what you're going to get.
1: All right, Chuck. Well, I think that about wraps it up. Thank you so much for taking the time and hanging out with us. Yeah, thank you.
0: Thank Ron for your one question. Man, that was good. I was read a question. <laughs> oh <my God. laughs>
1: All right. Well, here we are in the rapid fire hot take section of the show. So we're going to put Evan on the hot seat first. And the first question is, Evan, are
2: doorbells past their useful life? I thought you were going to ask me, are doorbells bullshit? That kind of actually is what you asked me. Uh,
1: Well, I I, and I'll I'll say that the reason I didn't ask whether or not they're bullshit is because doorbells didn't used to be bullshit. Because you didn't used to have
2: another way to tell people that you were at their house. Okay, so are they are they useless now? Have they outgrown their... Outgrown no, they haven't. They haven't because it, it's still more convenient than showing up at someone's doorstep, pulling out your phone and texting, I'm here, right? You show up, you push a button, it's, it's, that's it, boom. I think that even as someone who's in the house, I'd still prefer the doorbell because what if you're not with your phone? I always Every time I'm texting someone, I'm here. If you're at their door, I'm always wondering, like, okay, well, are they even with their phone? Like, are they that doesn't they're gonna hear that doorbell anywhere they are in the house. They might not hear their phone go off. So I just think it's more reliable. Like dogs aside, I think it's more reliable both for the the visitor and the homeowner. All right. Well, let me ask you another question and let's go a little deeper. When was the last <laughs> I didn't know, I didn't know this had this had different layers, this question. No this, All right. this is serious shit. Okay.
1: When was the last time you knocked on somebody's door or arrived at their house when they didn't know you were coming? I I mean, I'm not a fucking creep, Tim. that's Someone... when the doorbell had a purpose, in my opinion. I can't even tell you the last time I went to somebody's house when they didn't know I was coming now. Because, like, it seems like, you know, doorbells were great back when people used to go ask their neighbor for a cup of sugar because they're making a cake. Like they need a couple eggs. I still do that. Like, people constantly. need that kind of shit. Yeah, sure, go because your neighbor didn't know that you're coming or whatever. But now it's like, if I need that stuff, I'm going to text my neighbor first and then they're going to know that I'm coming. I'm not just going to show up. That's weird.
2: Yeah, but then they have to, but then they have to, they know, okay, Tim's going to come within the next like 15 minutes or so. But they still don't know when you're standing on the doorstep unless you knock or ring the doorbell. They, unless they're like constantly peeping out their window for you, which is kind of an inconvenience to them, or have their phone with them, I think it's the ultimate convenience for the homeowner because the homeowner doesn't have to stay by their phone. They don't have to look out the window. They just listen for the doorbell. It's easy. What are your thoughts on like knocking and or those um, door knockers? Those those are nice when you, you show up to a door and there's just a nice big. Not, there's not like a nice pair of door knockers, Tim.
1: Yeah. Because those like beg you to knock, you know, they beg you to knock them. And I think that I would prefer that. Like I'm actually strongly considering putting duct tape over my doorbell and then putting a piece of yellow tape on top of
2: the duct tape that says, do not ring. Yeah. That'll scare away anyone that wanted to visit you in the first place. So that's actually perfect. I, I, the door knocker thing, I think, (laughs) I I think of every time I like approach one of those things, I imagine that, you know, you, do three nice big like boom boom booms and that it's always going to be a, a butler dressed in like a tuxedo that answers whose name is like jarvis in a british accent
1: yeah i agree i i'll take a door knocker i just i don't like doorbells anymore and like it's at the point now in 2021 like when i ring someone's doorbell on the odd occasion that that happens i almost feel bad like i'm intruding on them by ringing on their doorbell <laughs> My next question is kind of a furtherance of that. And I feel like <laughs> you you might have a strong opinion about this one based on your past employment. If there is a
2: bell at the front desk of a hotel, do you ring it? Uh, I wait for at least like 15 to 20 seconds. And then if no one shows up, then I ring it. Well,
1: I, I'm just wondering, because like, I feel like what some people do is they'll come in The guy's not there, but they don't want to ring the bell quite yet. Like you said, they want to wait 15 or 20 seconds. So what they'll do is they'll kind of like breathe really loudly or like tap their finger on the desk. Like they'll make some like, you know, inconspicuous noises that don't sound like you're trying to make noises in hopes that the person is just around the door and will hear
2: it and come out without them having to ring the bell. That's what I do that's what I do when I'm trying not to startle somebody who I know I'm going to startle because they're not paying attention. So I know, so I, I, make noise on purpose. Like I stamp my feet when I approach like the, the desk or whatever to alert the person like, uh, I'm here. Okay. Someone's here. Don't be startled. Don't make me feel like a dick. But yeah, no, that, no, that's, I, I, I do try to avoid ringing the bell. Cause I, when I used to work in the hotel, I used to work in a hotel where we had a, um, we had to do the laundry in the basement and the desk was upstairs, so I had to go up and down and up and down. And the only way I'd know if there was a guest is if the, the bell was rung. And there was absolutely no way for me to know there was a guest unless someone rang the bell. So it was a necessity, but I hated, hated being summoned like I was a butler by a do- by a door knocker uh, by that bell. Hated it. So yeah, and I definitely get that it sucks, but it's like I don't know. As also as a hotel guy, I know that you like you you will waste as much time as you can possibly get away with so unless someone rings the bell sometimes they're legit going to stand there for like 15 minutes so all right and last question do you know what the phone (laughs) operator is i I love these questions i don't know where you're coming up with them but the phone operator like from like a like in the 80s like 80s like with like in, you know before the 90s when you would call like a like go a pay phone you call the operator the operator would direct your call to the party that you were trying to reach
1: yes exactly and, and yeah this is something okay. that went out went obsolete when i was probably like 12 even before my time it was like it was like what you see in the old movies where it's like the person sitting in the chair, like plugging the cables in and out of the lines, you know, like that was gone by the time I was a kid. But when I was a kid, the the operator was basically like a physical version of the yellow pages. Like you could dial zero and ask for somebody's phone number or ask for like the phone number of the restaurant you wanted to get a reservation at. Like you could do, it was basically like the original Google.
2: It's like a concierge. That's, that's actually sick. I don't know. I'm surprised there isn't something... So where are all the operators? That's my question. Well, yeah, if you are an operator,
1: I let us know by leaving us a review on iTunes what it is that you're doing right now. Like, what is your new job?
2: That is our target demographic. It's former phone operators. People say, like, what's your target audience for no blackout dates? It's, it's former, people that used to work as former phone operators in 1985. It's funny because up until
1: this moment, my my target guest for our show like my number one bucket list guest was a tsa agent but now it's a former phone operator
2: like what's what that, that set of skills is transferable to being a receptionist i guess like administrative assistant i, I don't know like it's i feel like they're kind of like a specialized field though like that's a legacy it's like being a flight attendant on pan am you know, you're a, phone, you're a phone operator. You can have your pick of any communicate. They should put you right in the like, make you a sergeant, stick you in Iraq, and put you in charge of all the communications because you can hand, you can multitask. All right, I got uh, two two or three here. Let's we'll see how this goes. Um, first one, you're a uh, fairly avid hiker. Yep. Yes. Confirm. 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 Yes. Okay. Good. Yeah. Do you say hello to every person that you pass on a hike, or do you selectively say hello, or do you not say hello to anybody?
1: So my deal is I I look at people, and I try to gauge whether or not they're going to look back at me. And if they look at me, I will be like, hey, what's up, or like, how's it going, or something. And then if they want to engage in small talk, I'll do that real quick.
2: Oh, you do small talk too? Wow. Okay. So you stop and like do...
1: Yeah, but only only in passing. I don't like... I'm not trying to like stop and talk to you unless you like ask me okay. a question about, you know, the trail or whatever. But But yeah, like, so I am not... Some people, when you're passing them on the trail, they'll like look down and you can kind of tell that they don't want me to say anything. And if that happens, I will kind of usually... Cause I'm usually by myself and not in a huge hurry cause I'm done with work or whatever. So I'll usually kind of just stand off to the side of the trail for a second and let them go. But if they look at me, I'll be like, Hey, how's it going? Or beautiful day. Or, you know, I'll say some dumb shit like that. And, and usually they'll say the same thing back to me.
2: Okay. I, I, I was asking because I'm, this happens a lot in Colorado that I didn't notice it in Massachusetts as much. And uh, today I was out for a, uh, let's not kid ourselves, not a hike. I was out for a, a walk. And every single person that I passed looks up and is is like smiling and is like, Hey, "Hey, how's it going? And I I feel like it's like a full-time job having to pay attention so that I don't miss someone saying hello to me. It's almost like nerve wracking. Like, I just want to go out for a nice stroll. I'm not trying to be like a dick that has his head down all the time and like doesn't talk to anyone, but every single person like, Hey, how's it going? And then it's just, it's, it's sort of just distracting, you know? I mean, is that like a, a New England mindset that I'm bringing to this or is that justified at all? Because I, I mean, I, I don't think so, but I don't, I, I feel like it was maybe giving out like friendly vibes by accident because people like you said, if you only say it to people that are like have their head up and look friendly, I don't think I was looking particularly friendly. I was just trying to do my own thing and every single person.
1: I think the default is to say hello. And, and now I think that is my default. Like I plan to say hello really quick. I don't plan to stop or engage, but I do plan to say hello and that's it. Uh, and and it really takes somebody actively not looking at me for me to not do that. Are travel podcasts bullshit? I mean, so this is the thing. This is the deal. and And, and this kind of plays into my opinion about digital nomads and all of these things. I don't think travel podcasts are bullshit. What I do kind of think is bullshit is all of the people and podcasts and blogs that are based on helping other people do something else that the person that's teaching that probably isn't qualified to lead. Like I I I'm sorry but I don't think the world needs any more life coaches okay like just because you don't want to have a job and you want to be able to travel the world i don't think that being a life coach is a valuable thing okay and and i think that travel podcasts can fall into that too because i'm sure if you were to get on itunes or whatever you listen to your podcasts on and scroll through all the travel podcasts 9 out of 10 of them are like this is how you can add more travel to your life this is how you can quit your job and become a digital nomad and the world doesn't need any more of that
2: To me, at least, and I can't speak for all listeners, but to me, traveling is a very interactive, uh, active experience that you can't do by listening to someone else or even by learning from someone else. I think it's really tough to learn a whole lot from someone else's travel experience. So that's why when even before we launched this podcast, I was listening to others to see what other people were doing, and it was all people... Talking about their own personal travel experiences and telling crazy travel stories and uh, their eye-opening and lightning experiences on the road, I just I turned them all off after 15 minutes, and I was thinking like, I love traveling. I I work in travel. I want to do a travel podcast myself. Why can't I listen to this? And the reason was, I was thinking these are all bullshit. But why was I thinking that I love this topic? It's because. It's something that you can't you can't experience vicariously through someone else, and that's what a lot of podcasts try and do. So to me, it's weird to criticize the genre that you're in, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think that they're bullshit for the reason you said, and for that reason too. People think people have such a high opinion of their own experiences and almost a selfish um, perspective that their own. Uh, their own experience their own knowledge their own wisdom that they've learned is so Im- important and transferable that other people have to hear it and will be entertained by it even though it didn't happen to them
1: yes and i yeah i think and i think we're honing in on this really well because i think what makes a lot of travel podcasts bullshit is that they're not really adding anything new to the conversation like i i think and I could be wrong and self serving in thinking this, but I think that the value in the No Blackout Dates podcast is that we present a more irreverent side of travel where we focus on the people that you meet along the way and kind of the off the cuff stuff that happens. We're not trying to teach anybody how to do it. And I and I and I think that if you're not gonna present something new to the conversation,
2: the conversation probably doesn't need you cool well that's all the questions that i've got and i think that's a good note to end on
1: yeah i agree so uh before we go we'd appreciate it if you head to apple podcast subscribe leave us a review tell us what you think um and be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcast whether that's spotify whether that's stitcher we're on them all and we hope to see you next week